We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel ben Corin. This week, we had the BBC journalist Razia Iqbal speak to the investigative reporter Ian Urbina about crimes on the high seas, everything from pirates to trafficking and illegal fishing. Daniel, tell us about it. Yes, so Ian Urbina is one of the world's best respected investigative reporters and he has a new book out called The Outlaw Ocean. He spent about five years researching this book. Three of them were spent at sea and he looked at the criminal underworld that exists in international waters. So everything from traffickers and smugglers to pirates and mercenaries to illegal fishermen, repo men and vigilante conservationists, an entire underground society that exists in international waters where there are no laws. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us to know what you think and others to find the episode. We'd really appreciate it if you've got a spare 30 seconds. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal, journalist for the BBC. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. Now, you can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Ian, it's a real pleasure to speak to you today. Let's start by outlining a little bit what this book is about, The Outlaw Ocean, Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. What do you mean by that? I mean, uh, this is an exploration of a frontier that happens to cover two-thirds of the planet and that, in my view, is largely defined or best understood as um, extra a realm of extra-legal activity, quite diverse extra-legal activity. Not all bad, some good, um, but most of it beyond the reach of government oversight. And And let's talk a little bit first then about why you wanted to do this book, because the basis of it is several investigations that you conducted for the New York Times. But the book itself has taken you years to write. Yeah, I'm a slow writer. Um, uh, But it was a large undertaking. Um, I think the motivation was on the simplest and most initial level, just to take the opportunity to go out into this space and bring readers there. 
partially because it's so sprawling, partially because I'd worked there before and I knew a lot of interesting things were happening out there, but partially also just because it's sort of beyond the horizon, it's a space that I think most of us landlubbers rely on. You know, 90% of everything we consume comes by way of ship and 50% of the oxygen we breathe comes from the oceans. And for lots of other reasons, it's a really vital space. 50 million people work out there and yet we rarely hear stories about what's going on out there. And I thought that would be a service. I want to go back to just one thing that you said in that last answer that you worked there because you were doing a PhD and you abandoned it to go and work as what and where? Tell us. <laughs> so I was, I was working on a dissertation in cultural anthropology and suffering long, cold Chicago winters and sort of losing steam on my dissertation. And um I decided to run away from it for a while and go work as a deckhand on a research ship that was anchored in Singapore. And I was supposed to be kind of the resident anthropologist as the ship went around to various exotic places. Um, but um, the ship got stuck in port for paperwork reasons for three months. And I ended up sort of being exposed to this diaspora transient tribe of people, of workers, namely seafarers and fishers who uh, were fascinating to me, you know, and um, had their own, you know, hierarchy and language and code of conduct and lifestyle. And so I sort of ran away from one anthropological <laughs> topic and backed my way right into another. When you when you talk about this being a, a place that is, uh, is, is lawless, the last untamed frontier, when did you first get a sense that these stories that were happening, these things that were happening to people on, on ships that you were observing were completely illegal. When was the first moment that you thought, I have a story here? I kind of had the hunch before I launched on the series in the New York Times. Again, having been exposed to these workers and hearing their stories about what life is like out there, both on the ship itself and the extent to which the ship is almost a floating country where the captain is God, you know, and the whole hierarchy and what that means just in terms of violence and discipline and all the way to once you get on the high seas, international waters, the things that the dumping of arms, the dumping of oil, the trading of human beings, you know, all these unbelievable things that we thought had been stamped out a century ago, these stories seem to indicate they were still going on out there. So when I set out to do the series, I wanted to A, report it from the space and not report it on land as told by returning seafarers and B, inform the public of the diversity of extra legal behavior that's happening out there. So I sort of selected stories that attempted to um, establish the corners of the canvas, if you will. So it, it, in as much as you wanted to be on these ships, and you were, this is a deeply researched book. Give us some sense of the kinds of stories that you encountered. You've alluded to them, you know, the illegal dumping of, of, of things, uh, real violence, um, illicit fishing and so on. Let, let's start with a story that, that you start with in the book. Outline for us the kinds of conditions that you saw people living in, because that really is the beginning of the reader learning how brutal the sea can be. The conditions on the ships are potentially the most striking 
element out there. And even to this day, eight, seven years in, I'm still shocked anew each time I go out at what I see. The story that I think most captured that reality was a story about sea slavery, which is a you know loaded term, but essentially refers to the problem of often trafficked migrant, sometimes debt bonded workers who end up sometimes very much against their will, uh, even shanghaied on fishing vessels and sort of spirited off to sea sometimes for years. And we had wanted to tell that story and we wanted to figure out where to go to do so. We chose the South China Sea near uh, and the Thai fleet because it was a pervasive problem there. And we wanted to go into those waters and into that fleet and look at a specific type of vessel within that realm, which are these transshipment vessels, which are boats that stay out really, really far from shore, sometimes for years, and just keep fishing. And a mothership comes out and brings fuel and men and food and ice, and then they bring the fish back. And we had heard that the subset of ships that are transshipment vessels are the ones where you'll find the most acute uh, atrocities of this sort. And so the challenge is getting out there because they're often 250, 300 miles away. Sometimes these are Thai vessels fishing off the coast of Somalia, really far away. Long story short, we eventually got on several of these. And the one that we really profiled was sort of a textbook model. It was a Thai fishing vessel. It had four Thai officers and 40 Cambodian crew. All those crew were trafficked men and many of them boys, some as young as 13, 14 years old. And just sort of the, aside from the basics of working six, seven days a week, 20 hours a day, rain or shine on an incredibly dangerous work floor, the ship, you know, is rat infested, roach infested, no sort of medical supplies. You get sick, you're probably going to have to figure that out on your own. And then just really acute violence from the officers on the crew if they make um, minor mistakes. So what sorts of things would would incur the the wrath of, of anyone who's in an official capacity? Minor infractions like moving too slow, being sick, getting seasick, putting a mackerel in a, in a bucket that's meant for sable fish, uh, dropping a valuable fish in a way, you know, that might bruise it seeming to cop an attitude with an officer, all these sorts of things could result in beatings or worse. You know, the, in 2000, the UN did a survey of this very demographic. So Cambodian deckhands who had returned ashore, and nearly 50% of them had witnessed firsthand murder on board, either of crew on of deckhands on deckhands or more often officers on crew. And no one is ever held accountable for any of this? Very rarely, extremely rarely, for obvious, for lots of reasons. One, the demographics of the victims, you know, these are, these are doubly invisible people, right? So they're migrants to begin with. So they're usually Cambodian or Laotian or um, Rohingya or, you know, um, Burmese, and, and they are on a Thai vessel, they don't have papers to be in the country. And then secondly, they're out beyond the horizon where there are no police anyway, and they're staying out there sometimes for years on end. So, you know, the the law that exists is what the captain says. That's the law. And the fishing itself is also illicit. Yeah, a lot of this is an interesting intersection of sort of human rights and labor crimes and environmental crimes. A lot of what's happening on these sorts of vessels is illegal fishing. And the reason you can say that, or at least the causal connection between the two 
types of crime are somewhat explained by the story of overfishing near shore stocks. So, you know, industrial boats have essentially raked clean what fish are near and catchable. And so these ships have to go ungodly distances from shore to catch a bare minimum just to break even. And this was already a thin margin uh, type of industry to begin with, and now it just got even worse. Fuel is very expensive, and so captains try to find ways to cut costs. And that often means using, you know, um, captive workers and then sometimes not even paying them afterwards. And the way in which these um, young boys and men are are captured or at least persuaded to be the, the fishermen and the deckhands is also a dimension that you look at, the way in which young girls mm. are trafficked in order to lure the men onto the boats. Yeah, there's a, there's a really dark intersection between two pipelines of trafficked labor in the case of Thailand, but elsewhere too. In Thailand's case, we went to a border town to look at this specifically, a, a town called Ranong. And what you see there is boys and men from Cambodia, for example, are coming across the border, you know, hidden in the back of trucks, etc. Oftentimes, there's males and females at coming across the border initially. Soon after the border, there are places where they're separated. And the narrative that has attracted these workers is typically for the men, I can find you a good job in construction in Thailand. And uh, it's a good paying job and, and you can send the money home, come with me. And for females, it's usually, I can find you a good job as a domestic. So a live-in uh, nanny, maid, come with me. Well, truth is, neither of those jobs are actually on offer. The men are actually being routed to the docks, and the women are being routed to the sex work industry. And at the border, or shortly inside country at the border, you see the genders split, and the the females are, are sort of routed to these karaoke bars, I put in air quotes, which are really brothels. And what's really dark is that then there's this clever and sinister tactic that's used where the deckhands who are often coming from the very same villages as the sex workers um, are then held in rooms at these karaoke bars as they're waiting for their ship to be ready to deploy. And these are small, sometimes unsavvy village folk who are not worldly wise, not to mention the fact that they don't speak Thai, you know, and so they have no idea what's going on and they don't have a scent of their name. And so now they're housed at a place, they begin carousing with the females, they run up a tab at the bar thinking that, well, it's not on them. And lo and behold, that debt that they've accrued is used to sell them for a higher price to the boat captains and, and essentially enslave them for even longer. So you have a situation where trafficked girls are being used to further entrap trafficked boys. It's also deeply, deeply grim. I, I want to go back a little bit and ask you about access, because you talked about how far away from anywhere a lot of this takes place. So international waters occur 12, 13 miles away from uh, any land. How did you persuade people to let you let you get onto these vessels? So the book varies, right? So it's about murder of stowaways and arms trafficking and dumping of oil and a whole variety of crimes. And the answer to that question varies per topic. In the case of sea slavery, which is one of the more difficult ones to report, 
partially because we were trying to get so far out. The the approach we used was initially we thought, well, why don't we being this amazing photographer, British photographer named Adam Dean, and I thought, well, ideally we could find a captain willing to take us out the full distance. So we went to a port town in Thailand called Songkla and sort of set up camp there somewhat discreetly because Thailand was getting a lot of attention already. And we just started taking captains out and trying to convince them to serve as a taxi for us. It was not an easy sell. Um, and, uh, you know, um, we quickly realized that there was no way we were going to get any of them to take us out the full distance. Um, so we were going to have to find someone who's willing to take us out a shorter distance, like 50 miles, and then talk our way onto another ship. That took a while, too. And eventually, when we found those who would do that first jump, the first jump in the hopscotch routine was always the first one. It was always the most difficult one. And they would say, look, oh, fine, I'll take you out but you have to meet me seven miles out and get on my ship there. And then I'll take you 50 out, put you on another ship, and you're on your own from there. Because they didn't want to be seen in port with us uh, climbing on their ship. And and a, a lot of this, you know, I, I mentioned how deeply researched this is. This requires enormous resources and commitment from the part of both your employer at the New York Times, but also your publisher. I mean, it, it does feel as though this has been a huge commitment on the part of lots of people. That's quite right. Yeah, no, it's it's a very expensive line of reporting. And, and as you well know, our business of journalism is not a lucrative one and not doing so great financially these days. So it's a, it's a tough sell. The Times was amazing in taking this leap of faith for two years. And the series ran in the paper for a year and a half, two years. And then, yeah, my publisher in the US and UK, you know, allowed me to take two years leave from the paper and go back out to sea to report, you know, um, 80% more, you know. Um, and what are your sea legs like? <laughs> <laughs> you know, interestingly, I don't, I have a strange inner ear that allows me to not get seasick, which is a real luxury, but I get horribly land sick. So the longer I stay out there, the worse I'm, I am when I get back and I have, essentially standing bed spins, you know, um, and I throw up and I, because I can't get my pendulum to switch back. And so I feel like I'm rocking even though I'm on land. And that's the harder adjustment. Wow. But I'm, I'm in good shape on that, the that's, that's really interesting. So, I mean, the, the, the big revelation in this book is that there is clearly a system at work here that is designed to prevent accountability of any number of the things that you have already outlined. Was that the thing that shocked you? and propelled you to continue to investigate? Two things. Yeah, the, the incredible lack of enforcement. You know, it was, it was such a simple, almost cliche truth. You know, laws are only as good as their enforcement. And to see it in, re, in such a stark reality out there where there was literally no police. And so these terms on the books didn't matter. That was a shocker and kind of kept me wanting to prove that point over and over again. And then the, the second, I think, thing that struck me was how robust a world this frontier is in terms of the colorful characters and wild-eyed activities that are going on out there. Again, not always bad. Some of them just sort of vigilante conservationists and abortion providers who are trying to ferret women offshore in places where getting an abortion is illegal and dangerous, you know, just oh, people, repo men who are stealing ships on behalf of New York bankers. I mean, there's just a wild west 
sort of environment out there that made me think, oh, well, this is a story that we'll keep on giving. Let, let's let's focus a little on one of the ones that you've mentioned because the world that you you paint, the picture that emerges is almost entirely male. You mentioned the young girls who are trafficked, but you you talked about the the uh, the abortion ship. This is the uh, a Dutch doctor and 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 an artist, Rebecca Gompertz, who who travel around the world. Just tell us that story of, of, of providing abortions for, for women who come from countries where it's illegal. Right. So my interest in Rebecca was twofold. One, I very much wanted to f- find and engage with characters who are female uh, because the seafaring world is unbelievably male. And number two, I wanted to demonstrate the diversity of extra legal behavior out there even some of it you might many people might agree with but it's clearly on the edges of the law rebecca gompertz is a really perfect example as you said she's a former greenpeace doctor obgyn dutch and she has a ship and an organization called women on waves and her mission is to go to countries where abortion is both illegal and often dangerous for the women or girls who are seeking them she typically will bring her ship or yacht, depending on what vessel she's using at the time, uh, quietly into port. She'll plug into a sort of, I guess you would call it an underground network of advocates and doctors to find out where the most dire need was and to get in touch with those females and then find a way to get them to the port to get them onto her ship. Gompertz does not perform surgical abortions. She performs medical abortions, so administers RU486. But the the loophole she plays on is one in which the law on a vessel is dictated by the flag the vessel flies. So, And that is true once you leave national waters. So the minute Rebecca would get her ship and those patients or clients out to the 13-mile mark, she was in international waters, and suddenly the law that applied there was the flag of her ship, in this case, Austrian, and that meant that abortion providing was legal. And so this was sort of an interesting gaming of the system and one that I thought sort of illustrated this odd frontier sort of element of the high seas. Now it's time for a quick break. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Ian Abina, let's uh, let's look a, a little bit more closely at the way in which you've you've structured this book, because your ability to draw the reader in and present these stories almost as though they are thrilling. They are. This is a this is a, a story that is told as a page turner. These are people who we want to know what happens to them. Obviously, that's partly to do with the fact that you are a very good writer. But I wonder how much of that was informed by your training as an anthropologist. I think that anthropology helped me a lot as a journalist because it made me lean into the idea that you're always an outsider wherever you are and you should always view yourself in a place almost as an immigrant or a or a Martian even, you know, and therefore things that other folks take for granted, um, you should really focus on them and embrace them and ask them questions about them and capture it all. And I think that ethic falls away when you're a beat reporter because you become accustomed to norms within that topic or that place or those people. That's how you get good at your beat. But in my case, I wanted to approach every place as a foreign world and I try to really accentuate that in this book, partially because I really do believe that the very notion of getting on these ships and heading out to sea is a bit like space travel on Earth. You're getting in a spaceship and you're traveling to a place that most people don't go. You can't really get off the spaceship. And you're in this weirdly claustrophobic and agoraphobic world in that you're stuck on a ship with all these other people, but you're in this bizarrely sprawling, powerful place. And so with that in mind, I kind of always viewed the characters as otherworldly and therefore needing to be captured and rendered in that kind of Martian wide-eyed way. In, in that context... I mean, it obviously takes guts to be away from what other people would regard as their conventional lives for as long as you have been in order to research this. But 
it takes, you know, it takes guts, it takes courage. And I wonder how frightened you ever were. Can you can you give us examples of moments when you have been scared? So I always balk a little bit at this question. And I think you as a fellow journalist will understand why partially, especially someone who's done a lot of foreign reporting, because for any fear I felt, the reality was that the people I was talking to, not to mention the people I'd brought with me, so the in-country translators and fixers and co-reporters and photographers, or the sources that I was reporting on, were always facing far worse. They can't leave, you know, they have to stay when I leave and they'll deal with the repercussions of what I write. And so all that makes me a little queasy about ever talking about my own fears or sense of danger. That said, I think um, there were two types of dangers slash fear. One was the conditions on these vessels. The reality quickly sunk in, you know, months into this reporting that if you're going to, if harm's going to come to you, it's probably going to be by way of sickness or infection because these ships are extremely dirty places and you're sleeping on the ground and there are rats running over you and, you know, you're just, you're, st- you're not showering for days on end and you're eating questionable stuff and, and you can't get back to shore. And I saw people getting sick and saw the problem that creates. So I think that's a real risk, not to mention you're on a, on a lot of these ships, especially the really poor, barely sea, seaworthy ones. It's best to imagine it as sort of um, a developing world factory with none of the OSHA protections on the machinery that runs nonstop. It's overcrowded. Its floor is skating rink slippery. It's moving up and down all the time like an elevator, you know, several floors. And them, the people around you, those workers, many of whom are barefoot, are masters at like master acrobats. So they know how to not fall and you don't. And you're also (laughs) working on, you know, 30, 40 hours of no sleep and it's middle of the night and no one's watching you. And so all these things are the real dangers of that reporting. There were some not nice people along the way that were not happy with us being there. And there were several of those instances in Somalia and Borneo where we, meaning my photographer, a guy named Fabio Nascimento, Brazilian, um, and I were in really thorny situations where in the middle of interviews, in one case, armed men showed up and and said, uh, this is over. And it got very aggressive and heated. And then in Somalia, we got we got stuck and sort of lost our security and had no way out. And that and those are two moments that I was genuinely scared. And and in in those moments, I mean, because there's it's quite clear that that the stories that you're telling in this in this book are, you know, that there is this this point at which uh, I'm just quoting from the book, you know, that the ocean lends itself to bystander syndrome. Some someone else will police the crimes. It's not a tragedy, but but an opportunity. That this idea that you are in this lawless zone anyway, that you've put yourself forward in order to report on this. I mean, I I wonder to what extent you, how do you square that with a life that you clearly have not on the sea? I mean, what does your family think about you doing what you're doing? You should ask them because you'll get an honest answer. I'll give you my answer, which is (laughs) um, much more measured than I think they might offer. Um, I think my family has resigned themselves to the fact that I'm very stubborn and and I'm going to do this. And the more that I do it, the more 
I feel like I have to keep doing it because I think the more you see awful things, the more you're haunted by them when you get back. And the more you feel like the only thing you can do to counter that sense of guilt and complicity and awareness is to keep reporting and to do it better next time and to not give it up. So I think they've reckoned with that fact that I'm doubling down and going to keep at it. I think also I always say when I get back and I have no new holes in my chest, you know, like that uh, I've been careful thus far and I'll continue to be careful. So I think that builds up some trust, but I know it causes a lot of heartburn for those around me. Sure. And I'm so struck by you saying that the the people who are in these situations are putting themselves in much more much more danger. I, I, I want to focus just a little bit on something you mentioned before, the karaoke bars, because you say in the book yourself that of all the things that you've seen, what you saw there was the most sinister. Descri- describe, paint a picture for us of, of what took place in those bars. Yeah, I mean, so it's funny that a book all about offshore brutality has potentially its most haunting moment for me personally in an onshore context. But this was in a karaoke bar at around three in the morning in this crappy, you know, border town where we were there wanting to look into this whole sex work entrapment scene. And we sat down, we being the photographer and I, and did not we didn't have to say what we were. We just postured as if we were just dumb Westerners looking for a good time. But we didn't have cameras out or pat, you know, pen and paper out or anything. And, and the bar owner, the brothel owner, came over, a, a young man, and began talking us up and asking us if we wanted to have fun. And in the far corner of the room were these three young women, is what I thought at the time, you know, kind of sequin top and mini skirt and caked on makeup and all dolled up and clearly sex workers. And the brothel owner proceeded to tell us about them. And he then pulled out a stack of Polaroids, which showed, and he referred to these three women, girls, as it turns out, as very popular, his most popular. And he pulls out these Polaroids and shows us how much he had improved them in the six months since he brought them across the border. And the Polaroids are of these little girls, one of them holding a stuffed animal. And when you see the, when I saw the picture of the girls and then looked over at these females in the corner and realized they were the same people, it was this chilling moment. And the brothel owner was attempting not just to sell their services to us, but to sell them to us actually to own these people. And I felt, and to this day felt so sullied and conflicted and disturbed by that interaction to see it up close and to know that we were just in nowhere. You know, this was just one little place that we happened to come upon. So this was clearly going on all over the place. And so I just think like that reality of human slavery and that it involves people that are so young and the sense of powerlessness I felt in, and just real, to be honest, uncertainty about 
the ethics of the journalistic duty of remove, you know, uh, and whether that's actually ethical to not do something other than just chronicle that moment. Those things will probably stay with me till I die. I, I wondered also about the the rapes that took place on the vessels, because that's clearly something that nobody is ever held accountable for. And it feels routine. Right. There is a fleet in one chapter I had the ambition of using a ship as a character, as the main character, not a person. And I thought that would be a really good way to show just how bad some of these villains can be. And instead, I ended up focusing on a fleet of really bad and of ships. And those ships called the Ouyang fleet had a severe problem with rape on board. And that, I think, as you point out, is especially dark because you're essentially stuck in a prison cell with your abuser for an indefinite period of time. They don't speak your language and there's a hierarchy that says you have to do what they're, what they say. And that just seemed, as you say, um, it's just another ring of Hades. I wonder about, you know, you, you, you talk about the, the discomfort of being a reporter and seeing the, the terrible things that you're seeing. I, I, I wonder also about the, the reader's complicity in what you are reporting, because a lot of what is happening illegally at sea connects to what we take completely for granted on, on land. So, for example, one in five fish that served on a dinner plate around the world has been caught illegally. What, what, what direct result has there been as a, a, from what you have reported? Has there been a shift or a change in, in any of the laws or at least the way in which the laws have been implemented? Mm. So I think in the past five years, there's, there has been a big shift and I don't think it's by any means exclusive to my reporting, the Associated Press, the Guardian, Al Jazeera, and the U.S. State Department, the EU. A lot of key players have been on this very effectively, and I was a part of that movement. I think the movement has triggered a reckoning that is in some ways akin to what historically we saw with, say, sweatshop-free garments or blood diamonds or dolphin-free tuna. These are all moments in history when a specific type of product had a sort of awakening about abuses, human rights, labor, environmental, whatever, in their supply chain, and they couldn't turn away from it. And from company to consumer to government, complicity was all laid to bear. And um, I think seafood international seafood is having to some degree that reckoning. I think that there is a lot going on with the EU and in the US, especially with the last administration that's trying to figure out how to counter this. I think there's also a reckoning that's interesting within the advocacy community because the environmental movement that seeks to prevent the protect the oceans has long ignored crimes above the waterline to the people out there because that's the realm of labor unions and human rights workers. And I think that's a big problem and one of the reasons why things have been allowed to get as bad as they are. And I think now those types of groups are talking to each other a bit more. I, I 
I don't really want to leave the listeners with with just the the incredibly deeply grim picture that you paint because there is of course this notion that we have people who live on the land who have a relationship with the sea which we have constructed and we tell ourselves that it's beautiful we go there to escape and so on but you also make it quite clear by the end of your book that this this is a place that is um that of unparalleled beauty i i i wonder if you would just reflect for us a little bit on on that dimension of it in terms of what you observed so i think there's beauty in the place and the people and the activities i think um the places this force more than a location and to be out there the experience of putting yourself in that space and traveling across it is um from on a human level a really existentially humbling thing you know because it's just uh the laws of physics the laws of time even psychology your own biometric habits you know all start changing out there and i think so I think it's a beautiful thing and I think it's a marvel to witness the creatures that are out there are just amazing and also the more you study and the more you realize how important that space is for the organ that is you know, the, the the biosphere that is the planet so all those things are awe inspiring and then the people that are out there too are are really inspiring I talk so much about the villains and there are so many heroes out there and then there are also just a lot of average folk who are traversing it, working out there, and none of this stuff is happening to you, but they show a really interesting difference to us land lovers, which is sort of inspiring in its own sense. They've chosen a very different type of lifestyle, and there's amazing camaraderie on these vessels and resilience, even in these horrible conditions. So all of that sort of is very inspiring and it speaks to just the beauty of the place. Ian Abina, thank you so much. You've given us, I think, a, a, a real insight, but also presented us in this book, The Outlaw Ocean Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier, with uh, what I think is a masterclass in, mm. in long-form journalism. So thank you very much indeed for speaking to us. Thank you for having me. Thank you.